Juice in the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I'm Corwin Heller. And we are here today to continue our Golden Globe nominee list. So uh, we are talking here today about the film The Banshees of Inisherin and Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Uh, Corwin Heller, where would you like to start? Um, 1910s Ireland or modern day, I think it's Greece? Um, I, I don't care. I'm now stuck thinking about where that movie takes place. Uh, let's go with Ireland. Um, so to that end, we will just begin our discussion talking about the Banshees of it is Sharon, which, of course, came out in 2022. It was written and directed by Martin McDonough and stars Colin Farrell, Blorendon Gleeson and Kerry Condon. Uh, the film had an estimated budget of nine million dollars and a worldwide gross of twenty two million dollars. Although this is also partially a streaming film. This is on HBO Max as we speak. Um, the film has a tagline. Okay, I feel like we didn't get any last week. Um, and the tagline is everything was fine yesterday. Nice. Fair, yeah. Yeah. One of works. the better ones. For sure. Um, we are discussing the film because it is a Golden Globe nominee. The film is currently nominated for um oh, I just lost. Oh, there it is. Um, best motion picture, best director, motion picture for Martin McDonough. Best motion picture, musical or comedy. Best performance by an actor in a supporting role in any motion picture for both Brendan Gleeson and Barry Corrigan. Sorry, Keoghan. Keoghan? Keoghan? No, I don't know. Uh, best original okay. score for Carter Burwell. Best performance by an actor in a motion picture, musical or comedy for Colin Farrell. Best performance by an actress in a supporting role in any motion picture for Kerry Condon. And best screenplay motion picture for Martin McDonough. The film itself is about two lifelong friends find themselves at an impasse when one abruptly ends their relationship with alarming consequences for both of them. Uh, Corwin, I'm going to force you to start on this one because it feels like it was your choice. Uh, boy, I hate you uh, for this. Um, Get fucked, loser. I love this duo. I love Martin McDonough. and Do what- it in Irish accent. Uh, dude, I'm struggling with English. Um, I love this film. Uh, I think Colin Farrell is perpetually uh, one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood, and I thought he had a utterly tremendous role in this. Um, I thought that it was as grounded yet completely. Uh, what what's the opposite of grounded? Surreal, Sur- uh, maybe. Uh, regardless, I, I, it's been a minute since I've watched it, but even that said, I can picture scenes from this film more clearly than things I have watched this week. Um, because of how I don't want to say impactful, uh, of a film, but how well crafted it was, and. Uh, I don't know if I've seen anything in 2022 that 
would top it as of yet. Uh, did you think about what else I've watched this year? Too. I know that you had watched this film in theater uh, a yes. few weeks ago, well before we had chosen it to be um, for, for this discussion. Did you rewatch it on HBO Max prior to the discussion? Or are you rolling, rolling with what you got from a few weeks ago? I'm rolling with what I got from a few weeks ago. I wanted to rewatch it and just never did. Such is life. Uh, yes, this this was this was my first uh, go around with it. I did not know what it was about, as I never know what movies are about. <laughs> I like to be blind, um, and so it was it was such an interesting, you know, thing because it's like it sounds so stupid, but I know so little about Ireland that for a hot minute I was like, oh, weird. They're not choosing to use electricity. <laughs> I guess this is what life is like in small Irish villages in modern day. And that's when I was like, ah, no, nope. It's like the teens, the night, the 1910s is what's happening in this movie. Um, took me a little bit. Um, and then I, you know, you, you get the, you get the why, um, cause every period piece film needs to give you a reason it's taking place in that period. You know, mm-hmm. there has to be a justification for it. And sometimes the justification is just as simple as we wanted to do a movie about a king or we wanted to do a movie about cholera. Um, and in this instance, it, it was not nearly as evident at, at, at the outset of why was it taking place in the 1910s? And you get very early on like, oh, well, this is when the Irish Civil War took place. And this is a film about civil war, yeah, an, an emotional local mm-hmm. localized civil war and is meant to be an allegory for that type of fighting and the mindsets therein you know or at least a, a a greatly reductionist view of the mindsets two of the potential mindsets between um sides in a in a civil war uh and to that end you know both characters are really quite flawed in kind of silly ways, but it's very much so in service of the idea that the need for civil war in the view of the author or filmmaker is at times like nebulous, which so he, and here's part of my problem with the movie which is that that is a very loving idea, but I also think a touch misguided. I will, I'm going to play both sides here. So that way I always come out on top. Great reference. Um, This is a great movie. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It's going to be a strong contender for best picture. And I'm very much so looking forward to seeing how it fares. Cause I very much so hope it fares well. Mm-hmm. love Brandon Gleason. He's so fucking good. And he's so good in his very minuscule or min, 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 lesser, I'll say, role than I was expecting him to have in, in this film. I, I I leaned towards minuscule only because my expectation was him to be in the film significantly more and have to have more to do. And he just does not. Really? Uh, as you had mentioned, Colin Farrell is fucking great. Barry Kogan, whose name I will never pronounce correctly because I'd never learned how. Um, is wonderful. Uh, Kerry Condor is, is is incredible. Like like the the cast is just so fucking good. 
really. Uh, Kerry Condon. I got that name wrong, too. I suck. Um, I do think, though, that the writing here leaves a little bit to be desired, which is now the second movie in a row, I think, from Martin McDonough that I've had kind of an issue in this regard. And that's why I feel... What was so the previous, kind of, if you don't mind me asking? Our our fierce debate over three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, yes. Where I very much so did not like yes. it. Yes. And thought it was quite bad. And here I also challenge his worldview in how it's being presented because I don't think it does a good job. And so... Because for me, right... When we're talking about civil war, this film takes the perspective on it, which is almost that it's silly for two people who have spent so long together and had such fruitful outcomes as a result for them to drive wedges between each other, whether they be uh, ill-informed or altruistic, right? Uh Brendan Gleeson thinks that he's doing the right thing for himself because he wants to leave behind a greater footprint. And in order to do that for him specifically in a musical sense, he needs to free up some of his limited time remaining on earth by cutting out um, Mm -hmm. Colin Farrell. God damn it. I'm so I don't remember his character's name. Uh, I do. It's it's a uh, 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 pa- Podrick Sullivan. I remember it because the name looks ridiculous, but it's Patrick Sullivan. But it's the um, Patrick, I Irish Irish sized. Uh, Irish. I should, I should have remembered Gaelic. that because that's the name of the English or the uh, UK. No, the European Ryder Cup team is captained. I watched him. Uh, I watched him you. win the U.S. Senior Open too. That was pretty cool. The reason that that this is really, I mean, childishly stupid is that show me a civil war where that's the case and that something of severe substance and matter wasn't what was being fought over. And look, I don't know much about the Irish civil war. I, I, I can do a cursory Google search and come up with something that I'm sure will not be very productive. But to treat it as to treat the concept of civil war with as much of a light dusting as this feels very disingenuous and wildly incorrect. And that's what I kept having at odds while watching the film that kept me from relating to it. I desperately wanted to latch onto it and didn't quite. Why do you feel like the aspect of the civil war occurring concurrently uh, why did you feel so connected to that being one of the main thematic um, foundations? Because I mean, when I was watching, yes, I, I for civil war. I well, that I understand that fact. there is an allegory that could be made. I don't want to say that the uh, overall purpose of the film is to make that allegory. I think it is a good time and place to have such an interpersonal strife because of that symbolism. I don't necessarily think that it is the overarching purpose of the film. 
I just I don't. I, I think mean, it was discussed enough during the film itself to really be a main thematic presence. I mean, Corwin, he set the movie during a conflict that lasted, uh, let's see, 11 months. I mean, it's tough I, to I, get more intentional I, with your choices. I promise that. you, I promise you that war lasted much longer than 11 months. Uh, June 28th, 1922 to May 24th, 1923. Like, no, I, I can I can tell you that's what Wikipedia has for the definition of that conflict. But that is a war that is being fought for decades throughout that century. Well, the, the troubles sparked up in the, in the 60s and, and oh, I mean, but that that's such an that that's a very, very reductionist view on what war is, because, I mean, look at the Middle East. You could say it's been a, a series of war ad nauseum since the dawn of the first Absolutely. man. But the point being that there are individualized conflicts that have individualized resolutions. Otherwise, we wouldn't regard the Treaty of Versailles as being an occurrence that broke up the you know World War One from World War Two, and would just run them both together into what was the Great Wars, because they had led directly from one to the next. I, I, but but that's not how life works. There are demarcations. There are separators and and buckets of time that we ascribe names to that have meaning meanings, beginnings, middles, and ends. The Irish Civil War, as it is called, lasted 11 months from the latter half of 1922 to the former half of 1923. There are conflicts that preceded it and there are conflicts that arose in its wake. But the Irish Civil War, which this film is an allegory, lasted 11 months. Okay. There was a treaty. Uh, why? Like, there why are not, there are not treaties McDon- for well, no, wars. Josh, Josh, just why does Martin McDonough have to do this to us? We are two adults. We've known each other for nearly a decade. We love one another. Why do we have to fight? Well, and I will, I will attest to what makes Martin McDonough a very effective writer because he picks things to tackle that elicit these types of responses. And I, that's where I think he's so effective. He is so good at selecting his narratives because otherwise they would not result in any debate or controversy, which is why I always want to like his movies. I, I really liked in Bruges. I was a big fan of seven psychopaths. I thought three billboards sucked hot ass. And I, I still, again, I will be in the guard. I don't even know what that is. So no, I don't know who's in it. Uh, Gleason. Ooh, no, I really feel like I should have seen it, but no. It's a good one. Interesting. Um he he is wickedly good at at the construction of of story and of, of picking his, his 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 settings and and his general themes. Because and the only reason I bring up my difficulty in accepting the war allegory for the story is it made accepting some of the resulting events of the story difficult to accept in kind. And uh, I guess let's tackle the film uh, and its general plot mm-hmm. points then to get into that, which so essentially uh, uh, Colin Farrell goes over to, he has a routine in which he goes over to Brendan Gleeson's house, picks him up for all intents and purposes, goes down to the pub, gets shit faced all day and then goes home. 
and Brennan Gleason doesn't come out of his house one day. This drags into uh, so on and so forth, where we uh, unveil what I had espoused earlier, which is that Brendan Gleason's like, I want to make music so that I can leave something behind like Mozart did. Fuck you, Podrick. I, I'm a straight up Dunsville here. Um, Podrick, in, incapable of accepting this, continues to reach out, which leads Brendan Gleason to making the threat. Uh, if you don't leave me the fuck alone, I'm going to start chopping off fingers and I want to chop off my fingers so that you understand that I mean it. Uh, at which point uh, later in the film, he then does. That's what I want your opinion on, because it is it is a very big thing to mm-hmm. cut off all five of your fingers, mm-hmm. um, which he does one and then does the remaining four in one big go. I think hear you formulating a sentence. Yes, and it's as much of a struggle now as it ever has been. I if only I had weeks to prepare for this and formulate these thoughts. (laughs) I think the mind that thinks that fuck. I think it is per- perfectly reasonable to reach an age living a life as such he was living and realize that you have nothing to show for it facing that just universe universal question of like what will I be remembered for what is my legacy you know unmarried fatherless or childless um who who will remember me and for a small town on a small island in you know 1910 per se the answer is wholeheartedly uh no one after about like 50 years so having that quote-unquote midlife crisis and wanting to make drastic changes is of perfectly sound mind and body um the extent to which he did so is laughably mad. But god damn, if I don't respect the way in which he put his first down his foot down and held himself to a new standard. Um I really would love to have watched this again in time for this podcast to kind of try and peel back the layers of the onion that would be his conscious thought for why uh, he deemed that so worthy um fuck god I love this because <laughs> <laughs> here's so here's I mean how however you, you feel about his writing for this film I don't think I've ever been as uh, enthralled by someone losing a hand in a film since fucking the first or the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Evil Dead. Never seen it. Fuck you. I know he gets a chainsaw. Yeah, it's pretty fucking cool. 
Um, so here, here, here's my my thinking on it. Okay, because it, it kind of becomes a, a main part of the mo- when anyone's losing multiple digits and starts, you know, like lopping off fingers, it becomes a big part of your movie. Um, both in the scenes in which it occurs, and then in the you know little lasting consequences, what have you. I I like it as an escalation, right? But without the with 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 the attempt of subverting conflict in direct physical harm, right? Like Brendan Gleeson is saying in in a, in a lesser movie, right? You get a version of this, which is Brendan Gleeson say, "You come near me, I'm gonna start cutting off your fingers." And then does that, and it becomes like just some lame marathon man thing, right? That's not fun. Who cares, right? We, we, it it becomes uh, an en masse replay of the ear lopping off scene from the Reservoir Dogs, and it's like I don't care. So I it, could you it's, imagine it's, if that song came on during this film? That, that's the song Brendan Gleeson was writing the whole time. <laughs> and I don't know why I came here tonight. Uh, yeah. So I, I I I like it from 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 that perspective, but I, and this is part of why I brought up the Ireland Civil War thing so early on because it's it's from there that it, it kind of gets a, a little bit more difficult for me to truly wrap my fingers around, so to speak. <laughs> um, because for one thing, it seems so directly parallel to the the expression "you're cutting off your nose to spite your face" in a way that I found a little bit ham-fisted. But I, I I kept thinking, like, all right, what is being attempted to be said by this, right? It, not just by Brendan Gleeson, but by the writer, right? What are we supposed to take away from the severity of this action that is being invented from, from nowhere? And it seems, from my reading of it, to, to uh, you know, go against this backdrop of the Civil War. It meant to, it's meant to be such a thing of by doing this you're only harming yourself right and by uh, resorting to such extremes to maintain the conflict you are only uh, damaging your own whether it's known or unknown justified or unjustified there is collateral damage undertaken in engaging in conflict the problem with that, though, is that that assumes that conflict is inherently bad. And that's where I kept losing the movie a little bit, because mm. I, I think Brandon Gleason's wrong. Like, I, I, I disagree with Brandon Gleason's actions and his justifications. I think he's a he's a, he's an idiot and he gets called out as much by. Uh, Carrie Condon's character for not even knowing for all of his waxing poetic of Mozart getting his time of life wrong right but the problem is the movie wants you to to know that uh, with the parallel being that engaging in the civil war is the wrong thing to do and that I disagree with because engaging in civil war oftentimes throughout the history of civil wars is necessary and and right it is the right thing to do it's not pretty but it is needed to advance the the society to advance the suffering of those have been who have been marginalized in ireland's case 
in this specific case, to gain statehood and to gain independence from one of the most brutal colonizers in the history of mankind, England, which had instigated the right. potato famine merely decades before the events of this film that un- under uh, un- uh, taken fold. And so it, it, it's that dissonance where the actions of Brendan Gleeson's character, I I couldn't quite but, jive with. But you know? that's it, though, because it's putting yourself into a situation to fight a civil war is a noble cause when the cause is noble. Brendan Gleeson thinks that writing this great epic piece doing something with the years he has left is a truly noble and upstanding cause that requires, you know, not even requires, but would allow for such drastic choices to be made to reach their end goal when it's not. It's not a noble cause. It's a self-fulfilling cause. It may be something that would benefit you in a simple sense but it's not something that is for the betterment of anyone around him in the same sense that you know starting a civil war over fucking uh slavery because i don't know what the first irish civil war was or the one we're discussing is about um it's not a noble cause the cause that you're fighting for is arguably bad for the greater good of people it brendan gleason is the fool but that's kind of what they're getting at Mm. well that that, but that's what i'm trying to say is i think both of them play the fool uh, under the supposition that both sides of a civil war are wrong and i guess we'll we'll take this opportunity to talk about um Oh my god, I'm having the hardest time in keeping Colin Farrell's name in my fucking head. I keep wanting to say Colin Colin Firth. I keep wanting to say Kerry Condon. I don't want to say Colin Farrell. I cannot keep it in my head. Um, so his side of things is he is, you know, he's blindsided by the revelation that his uh only and and best of friends no longer wants to stay in in, uh friends with him. And is having such difficulty accepting that that he basically just kind of doesn't. And he is shown as escalating the situation by means of his insistence of trying to repair what is essentially irreparable. And by you know making these insistings insistences that that you know they come to some armistice and come to some mutual understanding, he does nothing but makes everything worse. Right. Uh, meant to suggest the idea that both sides share fault in the escalation of of a civil war. Right. There is equal blame, though, perhaps from different viewpoints or moral standings in why things get so bad as to instigate or necessitate a civil war, which is, again, why I found that to be kind of a like a third graders concept of what war is. Um but tell me what you think about our 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 local hometown nice guy doofus uh, Podrick Sullivan. I mean, there's not much. I think you are very much correct that both of these characters 
are fools. I think Brendan Gleeson is a fool in the sense that he thinks he is at least more all-knowing than he, I guess, is portrayed here. He he thinks he knows everything. He thinks he knows the right answer. He knows the right way to go about things. He is set on this quest to find self-fulfillment, even if he doesn't know the complete truth in Mozart, the repercussions of those around him, whatever you want to add on to that. Whereas Colin Farrell is a almost the other side of the coin, which is very fitting. He is a fool. He doesn't quite realize he is as much of a fool as he is, but he is very self-aware that his life and the things he finds pleasure in is simple, is straightforward, is basic. And he is... He's not hunting, you know, quite obviously any great, you know, artistic piece. He's just trying to find the daily comforts and friendship and whatnot. And I I think they act as, you know, two different poles, you know, polar opposites that are really anchored at the same point. They're pulling in opposite directions, but they're still kind of right there in the middle. I'm going to power us forward a little bit only sure, because there's, there's a number of things to talk about here. And I, d- I do want us to talk about the other exceedingly long movie we have to discuss today. Uh, so this film is also nominated for two other acting performances on top of the Gleason and uh, Colin Farrell ones. So I guess let's talk about Colin Farrell's sister in the film, played by uh, Kerry Condon, uh, Siobhan Sullivan, uh, who has... Uh, lovely arc for a woman in the movie uh, in this era in which she is kind of like a relatively meek um, introverted person bookish who seems as though she's putting her own life on pause to help take care of her brother who is kind and, and lovely but ultimately relatively simple and maybe can't sustain himself especially as he's going through a difficult period but who ultimately decides that she has to live her life too damn it and takes a job in the mainland in 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 dublin um one of the true emotional outlets in the film as, as i think she has the the broadest range of emotions between all the characters as she tries to navigate the politics of the situations as, as well as her own feelings and connections what do you think of carrie condon and and great more broadly, Siobhan Sullivan. Um, I think she was the only person of right mind in the entire film. Uh, to well, I don't think Patrick was crazy, but I do think she is the voice of reason for essentially the entire island. And goddamn, if I wasn't happy to see her, you know, find some fulfillment on the mainland. Um. I I was very torn at the beginning uh, about how I should feel about, you know, her self, I don't want to say self-worth because that's kind of demonizing, but, you know, a, a mid-30s woman living with her brother doing what I assume is like basic writing for work, uh, freelance writing. I don't remember if they ever actually discuss it. But 
she <sighs> fuck if I know. I'm losing my train of thought left and right. I got nothing. That's okay. Again, powering forward just to talk about the the other um Golden Globe nominated performance in here, which is that of uh Barry Kyogen, um, who plays Dominic Kearney, who is uh, one of the deaths in this film, uh, the son of the policeman who is uh drunkard and um very brazen and brash, uh, slurring his words through a thick Irish brogue throughout the entire film. Um, partly a nuisance, partly endearing. What did you think of um, the Dominic character and therefore Barry Kogan's uh, performance? Uh, the scene of him approaching Carrie Condon by the shores of the lake and just sputtering in what has to be the same way I sputter through this podcast trying to basically spit out asking her if she could ever see herself falling in love with a guy like him is, I mean, it has to be one of the top scenes of the year, uh, at least of what I've seen. Um, he is a tremendous character actor and I really would love to see him do more acclaimed to this level work like this was so perfect for him as an actor um and i thought the character was not surprisingly but very uh well layered that gave him for what you know initially seemed like pure comic relief he is one of the deeper characters in the film uh, not saying anyone is relatively shallow but there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle that they kind of just lay out there throughout the film that uh you really appreciate that yes he is the biggest fool on the island but boy he's one of the tougher ones at that yeah i mean he's kind of you know just to 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 bake it into the civil war analogy he's kind of like lost youth you, you know like it, it, you're you're sitting there not really sure how to feel about him because he's a, a, a drunk and seems like he's kind of uh, annoying everyone around him, but he does have a good heart to him. It seems, you know, he, he has his endearing moments. And then before he can, you can really get your, your fist around how to feel about him. His character dies. And you know, the, the truth of the matter is as this is not even, you know, Barry, Barry Cogan has, has played uh, parts in war films. Like he was in Dunkirk. Um, this is the age, if not younger, of a lot of the people that that spent time in war, especially at, at you know in this time. You know, movies often shows us the guys like John Wayne in their mid forties, and you know Kirk Douglas. But the reality is, it was guys like Barry Kogan's age. And when we talk about missing generations, especially from small villages, uh, they're talking about people like 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 uh, the Dominic character. Um, so I, 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 thirty. Get the fuck out of here! Is he really thirty years old? He looks amazing. I need to get on his skincare routine of what I can only assume is sweat and Guinness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought his character was perform was was, was uh, amazing. His performance was gorgeous. Um, last thing before we move on. Uh, the title, The Banshees of Inisharan, which we discover it's a it's a title drop at the end as uh Colm 
says that that's the name of his um his piece. Uh, what did you think of the title and how uh, the concept of a banshee was incorporated into the film? Uh, I really liked it. Um, I really, more than anything, think that it is something I would pick up on a second watch. Um, it wasn't something I necessarily was thinking much about until he discussed it quite literally in the film. Um, but uh, I think it's it's very fitting. Yeah, I think it's a it's a for one, it's a gorgeous title. Like even if you don't spend a, a hot second thinking about what it means, even if you don't speak English and someone says it to you, just like phonetically, gorgeous title. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one one of the reasons I, I loved uh, Colm's explanation of why he liked it, just for like the what he said, like the double N sound. I think. Yeah. Um, which is like, yeah, just like auditorily, it's very pleasing. It's a very pleasing name for a film. Um, and then the you know the idea of Banshees really just throwing kind of in a little bit of Irish lore into the film. It doesn't play a huge role. There's not like a lot of depth, at least that I got on like a first watch of the role of the Banshee outside of, well, the role of a Banshee in Irish mythology, you know, pretty mm-hmm. straightforward. Um, but uh, Leah, great job. Um, yeah, there, uh, there's a lot more to get uh, into the the death of the donkey. Uh, what were you going to say, Corwin? Uh, our boy Barry is playing the Joker in the new Batman universe. Uh, the Batman, who's actually in the Batman this year. Um, that is so perfect. I, I am nervous about it only because the DC Cinematic Universe is garbage. But I Colin Farrell's Penguin that, was fantastic. So. I do know that they were keeping the Batman very much separate from the DCEU. Which good because it's such a mess. Yeah. I forget honestly forget who directed it, but he was like, Yeah, absolutely not. We will not be doing that. You guys keep to yourselves. Good. Good, 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 good. Um, the, the, uh, and again, there's a, a lot more to get into with the movie, but we will uh, wrap it up here. So to that end, let's do final ratings and reviews and we'll move into our second feature. Corwin, you start. Um, I'm going to give this a four and a half. I, I was moved by the film. I cried a couple times. I didn't think about the civil war allegory too deeply when i was watching it so i wasn't thrown off by it Um, i have no negatives to say i give this um i I give this a solid four uh i really hope this film gets an oscar nomination for um production design or set decoration um the set deck in this movie was great the like the eclectic nature of uh, Brendan Gleeson's home and all of the masks and the the stark contrast against uh, Colin Farrell's home, which is very like sparsely decorated. There's there's very little personality and the idea of like what it means to have that much stuff in your home at that point in time is also indicative of a, a searching right. You're, like you'd have to. You couldn't buy that mask online. You know, you couldn't even really like go to a local shop. You probably had to go hunting for something. And and 
you know, you picking up wares on your travels. And so to to see, you know, Brennan Gleason's home with all this stuff hanging from the ceiling and strewn about in what seems like a methodical but also random way in in, in especially again in such contrast to Colin Farrell's own home. Um, which is so show so few signs of any travel or any intrigue and uh, things outside of the norm. Uh, I thought it was just brilliantly done. Great job from the um, set decorator. But uh, yeah, I, I give this a solid four. This this is definitely one of the strongest films that I think we've talked about for the year. Um, very looking much looking forward to seeing how it fares at the Oscars. So let's take that then into our next film to discuss, which is Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, which was written and directed by Ryan Johnson. The film stars Daniel Craig, Edward Norton, and uh, Kate Hudson. Uh, the film, oh, it's a Netflix movie. I don't think I have a budget here. Oh, $40 million is the estimate I see. Um, That seems... Quite reasonable. I was actually going to say that seems kind of low. Yeah. Uh, like I get that it's a very not. I don't want to say simple set because there's a lot of shit in there. But like it's not like it's anything all over the place. Like it was all things that could be done relatively. Most interiors are just from one set. Right. And it, yeah. it's not like it was over the top in you know actual cost to make movie quality props for any of that stuff i thought you know cost for payroll would work same thing but hey go figure uh there is a gross here it's it's like 13 million bucks but this is um this is the the new breed of netflix films which is they're reluctantly putting them out into theaters for brief stints before putting them on their streaming services so this did premiere in theaters for i want to say like two months maybe and then is now fully just available on on uh netflix streaming app so who did the actual um box office kind of means very little uh the, the tagline of the film is a ryan johnson whodunit uh yeah, I don't care. That that's not a movie tagline. That's a descriptor of the director. The film was nominated for two Golden Globes: um, Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, and Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy for Daniel Craig. The film is about uh, famed Southern detective Benoit Blanc travels to Greece for his latest case. Uh, that's the movie. Uh, Corbin, start with the last one. So I'll start with this one. Um, yeah, eh? it's um, it's okay. It's it's not bad, but it's not great either. It's kind of a weird. The best way I can describe this movie, and I thought a lot about this, is the best way I can describe this movie is a Gen X version of what people think is funny. Right? Like, Mm. I didn't laugh at any of the jokes in this movie, but I got them. But I feel like people my parents' age, i.e. Ryan Johnson's age, 
probably found this movie hysterical. Like Kate Hudson's sweatpants joke. It's not funny. I get it. And I hear the, the cadence of a joke. Frankly, I I didn't laugh at any of the jokes they were making because I was just laughing at them to begin with. And I I was fine with that. I was fine laughing at them, not with them. I I didn't even really laugh at them. I, I didn't find... For me, the things that worked very well about the first one were largely absent from this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I... It doesn't I you you can crack who did it real fast. Um, and yeah. I, I listened to someone talk about this and they were like, oh, it's so smart to make the killer so obvious in the beginning because it makes you question. Yourself on how simple it is. But the problem is the movie doesn't actually give you any real reason to think it's anybody other than Edward Norton. And so you figure out it's Edward Norton like 20, 30 minutes in, and then the whole movie, this movie's just like, yeah, it's still Edward Norton. Been him the whole time. Um, It's tough when the detective unraveling the mystery keeps saying how stupid it is because the problem is uh, it was. And I don't come to these types of movies looking to get told how dumb it is because uh, we could all do this and it wouldn't be very hard. I found it enjoyable watching it. That being said, it's enjoyable because Benoit Blanc is a tremendous character. And at the end of the day, sitting here and watching it with Quinn, just like, oh, hey, I think it's this person. Oh, no, it's not now. I think it's this person. It's an enjoyable experience. I I can't not recommend this to just someone to spend... Two hours, half, you know, you don't need to be locked in. You don't need to, you know, be worried about anything. It's a very easy watch, but it's such a step down from the first one. And I think the first one really hit that perfect storm of it was the first kind of whodunit that was structured in we are telling you who did it very early in the grand scheme of things. And the who done it then becomes how do we cover it up and get away with it, and then inevitably finding the real person behind all this rather than the cliche of uh, who did it. We'll find out in the last five minutes of the film. And having Ana de Armas be the lead role versus Janelle Monet is just so 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 different like that it's about as far end of a spectrum as you can get from one another i i do not have positive feelings towards janelle monet after watching this um i thought she was oh, yeah. very my, I was flat. Say, my hot take is that she was downright awful she was it was not good and like and i mean i, I mean the scenes where she's playing i think her character's name was helen like when she does up her the southern accent at Ben Blanc's house. Oh my God, it's awful. Like Benoit Blanc's accent is funny because Daniel Craig is a tremendous actor and it's a very good accent. That is something out of like a fucking 60s cartoon type cliche accent. 
Uh, she. It's genuinely. Might she's as well, probably the she biggest was, detriment to the film. She may as well have been directed by Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, I mean, I think if you had a truly compelling actress in that position, the writing of the film can kind of be—I don't want to say glossed over, but it—it's something you can kind of tuck away. It's like, look, I'm not expecting, you know, some Machiavellian piece here. Like, I'm not expecting Scorsese or Spielberg. It's a whodunit. It's a sequel to a, a very good film that um, kind of right place, right time, right situation, perfect storm. Um, it's enjoyable, but it, it just I the family aspect of the first film was very compelling to the story. Yes. And it was uh, contained enough to everything was believable. This was just kind of like, all right, so he's a billionaire that basically funded someone running for governor, uh, built SpaceX, and then his buddy is just also, you know, the lead engineer, smartest guy in the room for that. And he's friends with like The Rock. Oh, and he's friends. I've what like all of these different things. It's just like that isn't believable and the structure of the rest of it kind of crumbles because there's just a missing foundation there yeah and i i would argue that while the first film the the stereotypes that were being played upon within the family are all negative you know the most of the people there are yeah, you know, uh, gold diggers or uh, really, really mostly gold diggers to various uh, degrees and, and wants, right? Like the Michael mm-hmm. Shannon character wanted to turn the books into movies, and that was his monetary motivation. And the one woman was uh, essentially just a leech uh, from a former marriage, and so you know that was her motivation. The one girl wanted to go to college to major in whatever stupid thing she wanted to major in, so that was her monetary motivation. Everyone had a monetary relatively you know devious motivation but the scale was small right it was like a family and to that end it's a little bit easier to kind of like latch on to those things and to not look at those people with maybe the same level of like grandiose societal vitriol that you would have towards the people displayed in this movie and that's part of the other problem i had with the movie was at the end of it i don't i'm not happy like at the end of the movie, I'm supposed to be okay with the fact that these three or four exceedingly rich pieces of garbage are switching sides to the right side only because it has now become monetarily advantageous for them to do so. Oh, and this girl's sister is still straight up Deadsville. <laughs> like, it's not a happy ending. It's it just isn't like the end of the first film. Everyone got what was coming to them and everyone reaped what they sowed. None of that happened here. Yeah. And there was even a little bit of a a redemptive feeling in some of the characters like Jamie Lee Curtis getting to feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, she my husband was cheating on me and I found it out. And this is my small moral victory because, you know, this is more important than the money. And 
I have agency right. as a person and I, I've been getting walked over unbeknownst to me. And there's that small victory that makes you feel like, OK, everyone here was got caught up in the money. But maybe there's some redemptive qualities within a handful of these people to help you kind of latch on to them. There's not that here. Everyone's horrible. Like when the Joe Rogan stand in that is the Dave Batista character dies. I'm like, fucking good. Who cares? I hope the rest of you die too. Like, you're all leeches upon society whose death I root for. Your whodunit is not interesting to me. And that's part of the other thing that I I didn't really care for with this film was the, and I am coining the term to describe it, the Adam McKayan aspects of the film that I find so grating. Because I think part of what I dislike about this movie are all of the things I disliked about Don't Look Up. Which is like, yeah, I get it. That's the person most of us agree is bad. Doesn't make it funny. Like, yeah, Edward Norton made up words in an attempt to sound smart, like a Mark Zuckerberg or an Elon Musk might. It's not exactly funny. It's not exactly interesting. Uh, I, I got it. It's a modern day pop culture, uh, social critique, social commentary. Ain't funny. Oh, Catherine Hans, a politician. I can't be here. I get it. It's not funny. Don't think it's interesting. You sure? I think it's quite lazy. Oh, it's a murder mystery. Oh, I hope this island explodes with them all on it. Life sounds like it'd probably be better. Who cares? I and think what made the first one so good was that, you know, that self-contained aspect. It was relatively small stakes. It was something gone awry that if things work differently, you know, if if that situation that they were put in with the mix-up, or, no, I'm forgetting the plot. Regardless, it feels like it is very important to those characters and to a larger extent, anyone in that situation, it would be life-changing. But I feel like Netflix got their hand on the series and said, we're going to do the first one, but bigger. Just bigger extravagance, bigger sets, bigger scenes, bigger splendor and 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 glitz and glamour and that was absolutely nothing that made the first one special and unique and i, I think actually, it i would disagree i blame ryan johnson entirely for this sure i think this is, i think it's 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 all writing I'm, problems i'm not gonna argue that it was you know one or the other just that Fair. this feels now like something reduced yeah like it it feels like something you would get as a made for netflix movie not a something that was built off an independently created film series i i think part of what the first film did really well was uh which is required for a film like this which is required for a whodunit is the uh the slow administration of information Right. Mm-hmm. And, and interesting information. Right. We we get the how the murder took place pretty quick into the first movie. But we end up finding out that 
that's not necessarily what made the film interesting, right? There's mm-hmm. the motivations, and, and and we continually continue to get more tidbits of maybe nuances to how it was done that we weren't expecting, a, re- rep- a repetition of the events that we weren't expecting. Uh, there's a car chase in the middle of the movie, right? Like there, there's, um, in addition to all the, the the drips and drops of info that that we get as we go on, with this the film feels so oddly structured because we get this you know first hour first 40 minutes that's building up to them all arriving on the island. And you're like, okay, you know, we got the gang all together. Everyone's here. And then we, we take the, the big long flashback. And my problem with it is the pacing of it. It just grinds the movie to a halt when we dip back into the, um, you know, Janelle Monae reaching out to Daniel um, Craig in the first place. It it feels like oh this didn't need to be this long, this is taking so I all right, I I get it now. This lady is dead and her friends don't know that and there's a legal case. All right, I got it. Um, and it takes forever to get there, and then our reintroduction into the to the a plot leaves us with you know about another forty minutes left, and is brought into it by the gunshot. And this is one of my other big gripes with the movie is the attempted murder of Janelle Monáe's character, which was fucking lame. Mm-hmm. So fucking lame. You're going to... So you want me to buy that Edward Norton is an idiot, stupid, you know, overcompensating, overselling his goods. Got it. Got it. Whatever. That shot is very difficult. Number one. That is, for anyone who has not operated a handgun, that's an incredibly difficult shot at that distance, at night, through a pane of glass. Number one. Number two, the book. The book in her chest that's not brought up at all in a way that you think is going to be significant. And then all of a sudden, it's like Saving Private Ryan style, stopping her from dying. Is just like, oh, God, fuck you. And it's swear to God, it's just there for the joke of the Jeremy Renner hot sauce coming back into play, which is not funny. What do you think about that? Because it ends up becoming a huge plot point, you know, that she's able to then go navigate her way up to go get the, the napkin. I think... Part of what I was trying to say about Netflix taking over or coming into this relationship and and trying to make everything bigger, I think another aspect that you commented on is perfectly encapsulated by this is they just kind of like dumbed a lot of the exchanges down. Like it, it really like this is what we're going to go with. Is this just what was deemed, you know, it it just feels like a lot of decisions both with production and writing were written by like uh uh what's it called like focus groups mm-hmm. like oh we already had one of the what if we killed off the second character what if what if what if it's just like god this 
Well, the, it's the other mess. problem for me is like, okay, so Edward Norton is is become very quickly comfortable with more more murder than was already he had done, right? So he had killed Andy a while ago. He killed Dave Batista earlier in the night, about to kill, for all he knows, Andy again. So he's gotten real comfy cozy with murder, okay? You're telling me he's not also shooting... Daniel Craig, the only man on the island who could stop him, who is alone next to a woman who had just been killed? Why? Why would he do that? I don't know. Like, there's no good reason for it. Is he worried about Daniel Craig seeing him? Shoot him in the face. You have a gun. He's the only person in the room equipped to stop you. Now that I think about it, he has the power where all of those people already kind of just do whatever he asks of them because that's their meal ticket. If he just shot him dead in the middle of the room, it, what's what's stopping them from doing that again? I I was kind of wondering if it was going to be and and then there were none situation. If anyone's familiar with the Agatha Christie novel, um, because I thought, oh, that'd be cool. Um, until you know, again, you hit like the thirty-minute mark, and you go, "Oh, Edward Norton did this," and then you never get dissuaded from that. Um, but yeah, like because you're right, like he, he's got the he has the you're going to tell me that he has the money to take this car all over the world, and to win whatever lawsuit he feels like winning, to make up any lie and to essentially uh, uh, litigate its truth, the money to bring the. Mona Lisa, wherever he so chooses, you're telling me he couldn't literally get away with murder? Of just killing these fucking people? Because clearly their companionship does not amount to much in the face of potentially squandering his lifestyle, as evidenced by the fact that he just straight up deadsvilles Dave Batista in the middle of a room. It, which... Uh, to, to to be willing to resort to murder and not killing A, the only man on the island who you did not invite and for some reason is there, which is suspect, and B, that same man being the only person on the island who could prove that you did it because he it's what he does for a living and is exceedingly talented at it, is immensely stupid. And it seems as though the only justification for that within the universe of the film is Edward Norton is an idiot, which again is not fun to watch. It's it's an okay enough movie in that I think it does go down pretty smooth. You know, like being along for the ride of I have a much longer leash for whodunits, I think, than than like a, a regular regular movie because I love a good mystery. Right. Um so for me this still goes down pretty smooth. But it is a disappointing ride. Like to get re-entered into the A plot with the Jeremy Renner hot sauce bit was so painful. The destruction of all of the stuff in Edward Norton's place, alluding directly back to a, a um, disruptors conversation from earlier in the film, was lame and heavy-handed. Seeing the Mona Lisa get set ablaze was also lame and not an interesting choice to make. Uh, it, it it's. It is what a Gen X person thinks is a good movie. It's like, 
and a, a real attempt at Adam McKayian poignant satire. That's just not kind of funny and also doesn't have enough of what make movies good to really be good. In, in direct contrast yeah. to the first one, which had all those things and did a great job. It is pretty crazy how every character in the first film I genuinely really enjoyed. It was perfectly cast, a perfect ensemble. Uh, every character added to the film every time they were on sc- screen, or at least to some extent. I don't like a single one of the characters in this in the second one. I mean, Benoit Blanc, absolutely fantastic. Everyone else that was added, I don't think was a. I don't think they added positively to the film. I kept thinking about it in terms of the differences between in the first one, the uh, like the college Republican kid. You know, it was all buttoned mm-hmm. up, and his his uh, cousin keeps calling him a Nazi and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like fantastic. that kid. Is yeah, that kid's built to be the most unlikable person to this film's audience, and that character's fucking hilarious. I still laugh at like almost everything he says, and 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 even the things that he doesn't say, like just his interchanges, like oh, but he was in the bathroom masturbating, like that's fucking funny. That's been three years. I still remember that line because it's fucking funny. And I think you it's compare like, that. I bet he was in the bathroom, like masturbating to images of like dead deer or something outrageous yeah it was wild and you know what though like it was funny it had its moment it moved on and the film lets you hate this person but in small enough scope and relatable enough of a form that you can like understand who that is and your detest can come with some can come along with some like ability to laugh at the jokes because you know that they're not evil incarnate and you have no way to contextualize them versus Hugh Grant. Why is Hugh Grant in this movie? For people over the age of 40 to go, fucking Hugh Grant's in this movie. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I love Hugh Grant. I haven't seen him in forever. That's hilarious. And then for that to be it. He doesn't have a fucking line of dialogue. You know what's not interesting? uh, That Hugh Grant's in this fucking movie. How about uh, Ethan Hawke having that same role? How about the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the voice of the dong, of the gong? Like, which is, is he just actually, there. Or I thought they yes. were just saying that. No, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the voice of the gong. And he's the voice of the gong just so that you can go, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's the voice of the gong in this? That's hilarious! And nothing you know what? else. That is such an insane billionaire thing to do. I could almost... I'm I'm totally fine with it because that is absolutely something that uh, his character would do. We don't see him; he's not on screen. I don't. It could be literally anyone, but just them saying that is enough. It's not a joke. Like I'm not laughing at it, but it's a totally believable thing. The only one of the cameos I did enjoy was the um, Serena Williams one. I thought that one was really funny. <laughs> also, very believable. Well, that's the thing. No, it's not, which is why I thought it was a good joke. Like, sir, there's no way Serena Williams is just taking that time to just sit there. Oh, no, but I could totally see his character having her or, you know, trying to have her on retainer just to work out. 
But that's I'm sure I'm sure there is all this is what makes this movie someone could pay Serena Williams to like host a workout class. But all of that is what makes this movie so stupid because you can't tell me out of the same side of your mouth that this guy has enough money to have Serena to not be using the services of Serena Williams, (laughs) one of the most highest paid athletes in the world and one of the most talented athletes in world history, but also couldn't hire a hitman and tried to kill uh, Andy himself with sleeping pills. Uh, Money can't buy you sense. But that's the thing is it's so shitty for a movie. Like, there's no Agatha Christie books in which the the killer is straight up dumb. But and there's a disinteresting plot. There's a couple where like the killer's stupidity works as a foil, but there's still some like uncovering that needs to get done. In this movie, if you think about what actually happens in the film, it's not a lot. It really isn't. Everyone gets a box. They show up to an island. At dinner, Dave Batista dies. And then about two hours later, they find out that Edward Norton did it. That's the events of the movie. It's very little that actually happens in the movie. It takes two and a half hours to unfold. It's not interesting. It wait, it goes down pretty smooth. The jokes, while they don't work, do help you know, keep the dialogue pushing along. The tone of the film is fun. Benoit Blanc is great. Like, it's such a good character. You know, like that comedic Poirot character. Um, But it's just, it's just prohibitively not well written. Hard to argue. Yeah, get fucked, Ryan Johnson. I'll show you. Ruining Star Wars and this. Idiot. Frankly, at this point, I think it's more on JJ than it is Ryan Johnson. At least Ryan Johnson had a vision. JJ Abrams just fucking. Everyone, no, 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 I disagree. Everyone involved in Star Wars is wrong. All of the directors, the woman who heads up that division of Disney, Ryan Johnson included. Yes, they're all wrong. Ryan Johnson does not get a pass. But yeah, yeah. I guess Dave Filoni though he's he's getting it back on track, and John Favreau. Well, John Favreau is flawless, and we support John Favreau and all he does. But Star Wars is also a gobbledygook, pathetically bad franchise, and people should just stop supporting it. Um, let's uh, I guess move into final ratings and reviews so we can get on out of here. Uh, you start with the last one, so I'll start with this one. It's fine it's fine if you watch it i don't think you're like wasting your time if you're a completionist for award season it's not going to be the hardest movie you watch um it's light it's breezy it doesn't prevent me from being excited for a third one like i'm still very excited for a third one this did not ruin anything for me i have many complaints about it but it's still okay i give it like three I think feels right in the heart. Three stars. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna give it a three too. Yeah, like I, it's a self-contained film, so it's not like it's you know ruining an entire trilogy of one of the most beloved franchises in the history of uh, mankind. But um, I don't know if I have my high Peaks. hopes. <laughs> yes. 
I don't think I have high hopes for a third, but I'm probably still going to watch it regardless. My hopes are, I think, are actually higher for a third only because I feel like now that this shit turd of an idea is out, it obviously can't be replicated, which means you have to kind of contort yourself into a new concept, a new location, you know, new characters. And I think that will yield a better product. This this feels like the low point for me. That I've much, thought that, that about Ryan Johnson's work before, and once again, I will hold my breath. He is disappointing um, most of the time. But all right. So uh, to that end, Corwin, let's take this into next week's picks. What do you got? The menu. The menu. No fanfare, just the menu. Uh, excellent. Um, in the for for what we do, uh, or what we're in the midst of doing, the menu is currently nominated for two Golden Globes. It is nominated for Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy for Anya Taylor Joy, and it is nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy for Ralph Fine. I will be going with um or the other film really since there's it's less of a individualized selection here is uh avatar the way of water which is currently nominated for best motion picture drama and best director motion picture for james cameron uh that's it so check those out by probably like next week or something um we'll see in the meantime, if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corbin on Twitter, you can do so at Corbin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one.